The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thank you for listening. Oh, good afternoon. I was studying a text last week and came across this um, introduction to a teaching on the Four Measurables that I thought I'd like to bring into this session. Growth remains an individual task that is made possible by and starts from inner strength and a feeling of shelteredness. Regardless of whether the growth is induced from outside or comes directly from within, it never occurs in a vacuum or in isolation from other growth-aiding forces. Inner strength, in particular, elicits in us a capacity to reach out towards a deeper and wider dimension in human beings, abolishing the individual's self-imposed loneliness. Inner strength makes us participate, and participation means as much to give ourselves to others as it does to receive others into ourselves. This participation occurs through four fundamental properties, which are equally agents, sensibilities, perceptibilities, and feelings. Love, compassion, joyfulness, and equanimity. All of these suggesting and implying thoughtfulness for another's welfare, well-being, success, serenity, or the like, when taken as their positive connotations. Negatively, they are mere sentimental impulses inducing euphoric states in a make-believe world that is detrimental to growth. <clears throat> growth remains an individual task. Mm, this was true in the Buddha's time. Still true today. Mm, the challenge is that it all comes down to you. The good news is that you are just the right person. The challenge is that no one can carry you across. The good news is you don't need to wait. <laughs> it speaks of inner strength and feeling of shelteredness. Inner strength, I think, involves really all of our basic qualities, good qualities that we all possess, though they are not developed, and that's the thing. Practice helps us to cultivate. That's why the metaphor of a garden is used so often. We need to have good seeds, but good seeds need to be planted in fertile ground. And the gardener needs to know what makes the ground fertile. Good seed, fertile ground, but there need to be the right conditions. Temperature, moisture, shade, weeding. Our resolve, our commitment, our patience, our perseverance, our faith. Buddhism has really deeply examined, almost in a, as a kind of taxonomy, of the, the both the, the good qualities, the beautiful qualities, 
that we all possess and that are to be cultivated, but also the obstructive, difficult, binding qualities, because we really need to understand all of it. Bodhicitta is really the, the um, not most so much the source, but sort of the, the, the catalyst, the current, the force that brings forth these qualities. I mean, what makes this make sense? Right? If you've ever explained to a friend who's not in the least bit interested in Buddhism or meditation, what Seshin is, it might very likely not make sense to them. Why would you want to do that? For someone in whom bodhicitta has, has risen, this makes perfect sense. Not only does it make sense, it's almost a logical response. Bodhicitta allows these qualities that we have and what we need to bring forth, to bring them forth much, much stronger. Why? Because bodhicitta is not just about me. When it rises in me, it's not just about you. When it rises in you, it's about all of us. And that creates a much stronger motivation, a much greater strength. I remember when we were in the very early years of when Dadaroshi was going into Greenhaven, the Lotus Flower Sangha, our first prison sangha, and he would talk about strength because so many of the members of that sangha clearly and visibly cultivated a physical strength, spending a lot of time working out with weights. But he talked about a different kind of strength, a strength that came from letting go, a strength that came from vulnerability. Well, that just did not make sense in that place, in that world, at that time. That seemed like a recipe for disaster. To actively make yourself vulnerable, to cultivate compassion. But it came to make sense. <laughs> and it came to be cultivated, to be, to be brought out in so many of those students, even without their you know, consciously, intentionally trying to bring them out. The practice was working on them. But then this also talks about uh, being sheltered, protected. And this doesn't mean that you won't experience pain and difficulties, confusion, different kinds of challenges, of course. <clears throat> right? Buddhism never hides those truths, that we will encounter those things because we bring them with us. Practice doesn't make those things happen. It allows us to experience what we're carrying with us all the time. But we can think of it as uh, being sheltered because it allows us to meet those challenges within the refuge of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, within the refuge of our own body and mind, within the refuge of practice. There will be moments and periods of struggle and anguish, confusion, but it's not the same, not by a long shot, when you have a path, a true way. And to the deg degree and in the ways that we don't feel sheltered just simply within ourselves, our own body and mind, which is 
true and quite prevalent, then let us develop that so that you yourself are a refuge that you can draw on and gain confidence in. Delusion creates a false sense of inner strength, a false sense of shelter. And we know that it's false because it always blows up. I mean, it always falls short of providing us with the very thing we're counting on. And this is why that self-critical, inner critical mind and voice has to be really practiced skillfully because it undermines the sense of our own capacity, our own strength, our own refuge. And he says that never this growth never occurs in a vacuum. It's an individual task, but that takes place within a profound interrelatedness with others and with everything. So it is a solitary path, but we're not alone. In our aloneness, we're not isolated. Shawan is in one of the hermitage this week, alone, physically alone, but not isolated. It doesn't occur in a vacuum or in isolation from other growth-aiding forces. And we shouldn't underestimate the importance of the skillful conditions, circumstances, that will help us to aid. He's speaking about it here in terms of growth, but it's basically our practice, our development, our cultivation. Being sentient beings means we not only perceive through our senses, but we're influenced, we're affected. We, we know that, more or less, <laughs> but we're too often subject to that, at the mercy of that, being tossed about by that. In practice, we learn to put that to good use and to see what are those conditions that are really, really helpful and what are the ones that are not. Buddhism is quite clear and articulate about that. I mean, just the life we're living. Then he says, it elicits in us the capacity to reach out towards a deeper and wider dimension in human beings. That natural desire to not just be liberated, to not just be have a meaningful life, a purposeful life, a free life, in isolation, but in reaching out into a wider dimension. It seems to be one of the sort of irrepressible aspects of human nature, is that reaching out to a larger sense of something, a larger world, a larger experience, a larger life, which helps to dissolve our self-imposed loneliness. We often think of loneliness as something that's happening to us, or a result of something that's not happening, perhaps. But how might, might we be imposing our own sense of loneliness and isolation upon ourselves? 
This inner strength makes us participate, brings us into participation, which means as much to give ourselves to others as it does to receive others into ourselves. If we want to save all sentient beings, Dadaroshi used to say we have to be willing to be saved by sentient beings. To join, to share, to be a part of something, to move from our isolation into contact, into actively participating in a path, in a sangha, in a world. Let us participate in this world together. Isn't that what we're saying when we say, may we realize the Buddha way together? And so in that way, that inner aspect of our practice <clears throat> works together with that outer aspect. So the outer aspect helps us to keep from becoming isolated. The inner aspect helps us to keep from just being deluded and lost. And how do we participate? Well, the first practice of the Paramitas is giving to give, generosity. And Buddhism is very, very explicit about that and very spacious about that. Teachings say, beginning with the Buddha, that it's not, it's not about the quantity, the quality, the cost. It's about the mind of giving. And in that way, the simplest thing or the simplest gesture can be an act of giving. Gokan mentioned in encouraging us and caretaking to think of it as generosity, <clears throat> that we're not just getting something done, taking care of a task, fulfilling our assignment, but we're actually giving. Right? Who is this work for? Who is this task for? Who is benefiting from this? And in that way, again, the task can become much larger. It becomes more important. It's not just for you. It is for you, but it's not just for you. And, you know, the ways in which we, when it's just for us, you know, we might be satisfied with a certain something. But when it's for another, you know, if we care, if we have integrity, if it matters to us, then, then, if we would sell ourselves a little bit short, be a little bit too easily satisfied, that can help us to go further because it's for somebody else. And then he says that we participate through these four fundamental properties, agents. Think of that as the, the ways by which we practice, the ways by which we manifest our sensibilities, our ability to be sensitive, to appreciate, to know what's true and what's not true, what's skillful and not skillful. Our perceptibility is our ability to notice, to discern, to see into things. You know, we spend a lot of time, and by necessity, focusing on a lot of things within practice that on a certain level are staring us in the face. 
you know, the things that arise during session that get your attention. They bring forth emotions. They grab your mind. They become an obsessive loop. They affect you, right? So you know something's happening. And so it's like, oh, here's something I need to attend to. And that's essential because that is helping to calm all of those sort of larger, very impactful, and on a certain level, grosser level, um, aspects of our attachments and our views and our, you know, bound, being bound. But it's also important because as, as that, much of that gets worked out, resolved, calmed, dissolved, then we can begin to make contact with the much more subtle aspects of the Dharma, the teachings, the inner workings, the workings within the inner workings of our meditation, of our mind. It's where all of these teachings that we have understood, and for the most part understood correctly, and put into practice well, we begin to appreciate much, much deeper levels of these teachings. You know, in the beginning, I didn't really focus too much on the Buddha. You know, a long time ago, seemed a little abstract, and my teacher was much more present, right? And so that was really where my attention was, was on my teacher and his teachings and example and so on. And as time went on, you know, I studied and, you know, was encountering the Buddha every day in our liturgy and so on. And so I, you know, began to study more of the original teachings and reflecting on and bringing the Buddha into my liturgy. And, and I always sort of implicitly thought, you know, very enlightened guy, very um, smart person, you know, skill, like I had a general sense of... <laughs> Um, but over the years, as I've continued to practice, my appreciation for this person, you know, spoken of sometimes as a spiritual genius, for the way in which not only the depth of this person, this human being's enlightenment, but his ability to, to and his desire <laughs> to teach, Right? He didn't have to do that. To spend his whole life doing that, right up to his last breath, and to have, in a sense, be skilled, have developed skills early in his life, being taught to be a leader of his people. He was trained in certain skills, and then he spent all of his life not only putting those to good use, but it seems, developing those further so that he was able to teach in the ways that he did and articulate and present in ways that were understandable and could be, you know, put into practice the most subtle and, in a sense, difficult teachings possible. We think about the complexity of a human being, of human consciousness, of experience, of our delusion, of the fact that, that the essence of it is ineffable, can't be touched, 
He couldn't give it. He couldn't just say, here it is. And so as we practice, if we stay with it, stick around, keep coming back, then all, the, all of those deeper subtleties, or as, as much as we can, you know, discover for ourselves, is revealed. And in this, this passage, it's all being set up for the four measurables. So it's, all of this is being brought to bear so that we can practice loving-kindness and compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And in the, the text that follows, is by Longchenpo, a, a series of verses, <clears throat> he says, those who are unhappy or tormented by frustrations or engrossed in their happiness and wealth it's all inclusive. It's recognizing that everybody, even those who seem to have perfect lives, or who are deeply attached to or bitterly set against anyone, be they near or far, they are the objects of our love and compassion, joyfulness and equanimity. Those are the people we're bringing to mind. These are the people that we're directing these four forms of metta and goodness to. And he says, although there is no fixed order in their practice, those four fundamental practices, the beginner should at first develop equanimity. When they have become impassive about those near and far, then they can develop the other three properties. And I think this is worth reflecting on. The great way is not difficult, just have no preferences. When love and hate are absent, then we're liberated. When we're liberated from clinging to love and hate, then the way is clear, not hidden. When we each receive beginning instruction in Zazen, to not judge good or bad, right or wrong, that deeply, deeply habitual habit, habitual habit, yeah. It merits redundancy. <laughs> because we don't just do it once. <laughs> Why equanimity? Because we do judge, because we do fixate, because we do solidify things in their value as we decide their value is, which we have been taught to do. We need to be able to do that. We don't need to be able to do that with clinging, though. That's the thing. We need to be able to discern, to recognize right from wrong. Otherwise, we can't follow this path. But we need to do it without grasping. We need to be able to speak of others' errors and faults, but without hatred. That's the tough part. And so before, these teachings say, before we can genuinely bring forth loving kindness and compassion to alleviate suffering and that sympathetic joy, we need to work with that deeply habitual habit, there it is again, <laughs> of the tendency to um, 
divide. Because if we don't, we will get caught in our trying to bring forth loving kindness, in our attempts to be compassionate, and our sympathetic joy. We'll get bound by that. It won't be free, not as liberated as it can be. And so that essential practice of cultivating equanimity is taught to us in the very beginning of Zazen, in that very practice, that when something arises, we just experience it. That's why to not even name, label, because then we're beginning to solidify and establish what it is, what it is to me. Again, if you think of it in terms of the skandhas, we're there practicing zazen. There is form. Something arises, a sensation. Pain in your leg, tiredness in your body, the person next to you breathing loudly. Your senses come into contact. There's sensation, right? It's just sensation. It's pure contact, but then in a flash, shorter than a flash, we perceive it. My leg is hurting. I'm tired. They're breathing too loud. And at that moment, everything comes flooding in. It's no longer that pure contact is is virtually lost and now becomes blanketed within a proliferation that happens so quickly we don't see it, therefore we don't recognize it, that we, therefore we don't understand that it's happening and, and that our experience, our, our reaction to that sensation, that initial sensation, which is now a mental formation, judging it, wanting more, wanting less, building a case, grasping, denying, gains its strength, its power, its validity. We are right. This is wrong. And then we are in that constant up and down, waxing and waning, rising and falling, succeeding and losing. It's merciless, right? It's exhausting. It's painful. And so this emphasis on cultivating equanimity, but it has to be genuine, it has to be authentic, which means to, because if we try to gain equanimity by suppressing what we think of as negative, we're just reinforcing the very thing. That suppression is based on the idea that we've already come to the conclusion about. And so to not engage, to not react, and if we do react, to not react to that. But if we have reacted already, to not react to that. At some point, the stream has to be interrupted. Longchenpa says, Ah, would that the emotions of beings who are worn out by them together with all their latent tendencies, come to rest and mind calm down. 
with it all embodied beings tormented by the violence of attachment and hatred, calm down in mind so that it no longer oscillates between those near, those far, and is free from attachment and hatred. This is basically a kind of call, a plea. You know, the, the chaplain, the chaplain of Congress, who oftentimes opens up a session with a prayer, sometimes I wish they, they would just say, will you all please calm down? <laughs> to make everybody sit down and have to eat an ice cream cone, but in a cone. And it should already be soft and melting when they get it. <laughs> so that it gets all messy and gooey, right? And they become as children again. <laughs> and so then he talks about <clears throat> how in this practice of equanimity as we're cultivating that and directing it towards the people, right? People that we, we love and find easy, right, to love, but then to practice equanimity is to not get entangled in that love. And then to bring it towards people that we don't love, that we might have negative feelings for, hatred towards, and to not get entangled, to calm those impulses. And then to begin to move it forward. And he says, thinking in this way, move on in contempl contemplation from one being to two to three, from one country to one to many countries, to one continent, to the four continents, from one, two, three thousand worlds to every world. The measure of this cultivation is to see yourself and others, friends and enemies, as being alike, having the same nature, worthy of the same care and consideration. So he talks about objective, <clears throat> the objective aspect of these contemplations, which is where you're focusing on someone, as in this example. But then you move on to what he calls non-referential equanimity. You might think of it as transcendent, all-encompassing. He says, everything is mind in this being. Mind as such is like the spacious sky. Let your mind, free from all propositions about it, relax in this fear that in the ultimate sense has never come into existence and is utterly open. So this contemplation becomes more and more vast. It begins grounded and directed towards someone, and then more someones, and then more someones, until it becomes all-inclusive, all-expansive, radiant, upwards to the sky, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. And so to see how that development the cultivation of that field, right? In the beginning, you have a little patch you're tending to, right? Because that's manageable. We have to learn how to do that, right? So don't plant a field that's too big. But then as we gain skill and confidence, then you, you, you cultivate more of that field, right? You can plant more. You can take care of it. And then it gets larger, until you're up against the fences, or you just take the fences down. And then, when the mind has become naturally, and this is really important, it has to be authentic. We have to actually, when we have you know, an aspiration of equanimity, 
we have to be careful that we don't just sort of take our idea of that and just try and be equanimous. You know, put it on like a suit of clothes. That's just not going to help anybody. And so we have to actually work our way through this, right? Which means we have to work our way through all of the ways and moments in which we don't have equanimity. That's why the contemplation is to intentionally invoke in your mind someone that invokes a lack of equanimity. Right? So that we can practice that. But we do that in stages. So we start where it's easier. Then he says, when the mind has thus become calm in this aspect, think of all embodied beings in the same manner as you yourself would like your mother, your father, your, someone you love deeply to be happy. So here you're bringing forth love, loving kindness. So once there's equanimity, then you, we begin to bring forth loving kindness. And first there's the objective reference towards sentient beings. So again, we take it up and direct it towards particular people and then let that expand. <clears throat> its observable, observable quality is a mind that intends to let them temporarily, that is, those we're directing it to, find the happiness of gods and humans. And so in that, <clears throat> bringing forth loving kindness, we have to bring forth within us a real sense, a felt sense, a living sense of, of loving kindness. Which means we're infusing ourselves with loving kindness. And so, as he said earlier, to participate means that we are both being benefited by others. So that practice that is directed towards others is, is benefiting ourselves, but then we're also benefiting others by directing it outwards. Afterwards, to have everything in this reach and range of sameness is the great non-referential love. So now it's become unbounded. Its indication is the unity of loving kindness and openness, spaciousness of being, of your very nature. The result is visibly pure pleasantness and nobleness, a dignity. But immediately after you have engulfed, engulfed living beings in loving kindness, develop compassion. Why? Because within each of these, if we're not careful, we can become trapped in them. So we can get lost in loving kindness that we are cultivating and think that the whole world is loving kindness. And isn't it wonderful that everybody is so infused with loving kindness? And I feel so wonderful. And so to check that, that good practice, which is now becoming bound, ungrounded, we cultivate compassion. So we bring our attention, we develop compassion by thinking of the suffering, reflecting on, bringing it into our minds, in the same way that we're unable to bear mentally the suffering of our parents or those we care for. And I, you know, I speak about how it's important on this path of cultivating compassion and alleviating suffering that we have to have the capacity to hold the suffering that we experience both within ourselves and with others. 
right? Because we don't, if we're not, if we don't develop that capacity, we'll just crushed. We'll get crushed. We'll burn ourselves out. So we have to learn how to hold that, and actually, ultimately, to hold it lightly, joyfully. But here he's saying we also have to experience that suffering as being unable to bear. We can't bear it. It's too much. And I think both are important. The suffering that we can't bear motivates us to strive, to liberate our own suffering so that we can be more available in service and skillful and compassionate towards others. But to be able to bear the suffering so we keep going, <laughs> right? We don't get discouraged and defeated. And that as this gets stronger, right, it's easy to see how that can get us into trouble, right? Where by bringing that forth and really turning our attention to and invoking the suffering that people experience, we start to be, get dragged down by it. So then we bring forth sympathetic joy. And we turn our attention intentionally to all of the good qualities that people have. They're not just suffering. The bad actors, they're not just intrinsically evil. They're human beings. They have Buddha nature. They cause harm. We cause harm. They might cause harm on a much larger level, yes. But to see into the sameness, both in a relative sense, the ways in which we can relate, we can identify similar qualities, and also in the ultimate sense, that their nature too is not fixed. There's nothing permanent about them. They, meet, they have the capacity to change. They, too, are affected by their environment. Can be. And so to bring forth sympathetic joy, right? So we're intentionally bringing our attention to all of those beautiful qualities that people have. Their successes, their good fortune. So that we don't become jealous, prideful, small-minded, stingy. So he says, so when each living being is happy, being soaked by being soaked with compassion that you're extending to them, then we cultivate joyfulness, sympathetic joy. And the indication that this is arising is the birth of joy without envy. We feel joy for them, but we don't feel any envy. Their success, their development, their good does not diminish anything in us. It's all good. We're all benefiting from that. In the same way that another person's negativity, harm, diminishment hurts all of us. The result is steadfastness and joyfulness through this inner wealth. And that's what we're discovering, this inner wealth. And thereby addiction to the four immeasurable uh, these four measurably great properties is gradually freed up. We no longer get caught in them. 
And so it's very interesting how this teaching, which is all about bringing forth compassion and loving kindness and gladness and equanimity, that it's recognized that we can get attached to anything. We can take a practice which is powerful and good and is good for us and is helping us, and then something happens and it becomes something else. And it's not the practice, it's not the teaching, it's how we're using it, it's how we're holding it, it's how we're relating to it. And so we have to keep alert, we have to stay awake, we have to see the signs, we have to be warned, forewarned. We have to become skillful. And in these ways, the mind, our emotions, our thoughts, our karma, our perceptions, our relationships are transformed, become endowed with an observable perception, experience of those qualities that make the ground fertile, that allow the seed to sprout and grow strong and healthy, to come to life and grow strong. And as with all practices, all of this is predicated not just on the assumption or the belief or the faith, but the knowledge, the certainty that we all have those qualities within us. Right? There's no de debate about that in Buddhism. They're there. And there's that sense of, okay, so how do we how do we cultivate? How do we strengthen when we recognize those qualities that we want to ha have stronger? Like we want to be, them to be functioning. We want them to be, you know, more naturally arising. Okay, that's a nice wish. But what do we do? And that's the power of this. Is these are practices. <clears throat> When you wake up in the morning and just establish the intention, sitting on your bed in front of an altar, within the quiet of your morning zazen, and you bring forth an intention about how you want to come forth into this day. It's the same functioning, same principle. You're using your mind, the power of your mind, which is the most powerful thing that exists in the human world. And you're bringing it into alignment. You're infusing it with that intention. And what makes that powerful is that then we, when we move forward and then practice that, right? we can't just leave it behind. And when we really begin to understand that, that we can do that, that's available to us, and you can do that and establish that intention sitting on the edge of the bed to bring forth compassion, love, and kindness when you wake up feeling terrible, shitty, grumpy, judgmental, right? Fill it in with your own favorite banquet of unhappiness. <laughs> that you can be completely aware that you feel that way, that all that's inside of you, and you step forward 
and you bring your voice and your mind together in that intention. And that is completely legitimate. <laughs> right? It's authentic. Because you know, it's, you know what you're experiencing because you are mindful. And you're just making a choice. I see you. Come along if you must. But I have a day. I have this day. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.